Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking to writer and podcaster, Nora McInerney. Now, Nora famously does not like traveling. So we felt very lucky that she managed to actually make it to Seattle recently for our live show we recorded at Town Hall. She's going to talk about her new collection of essays, Bad Vibes Only, and what it's like being, in her words, the saddest happy person out there. Then we're going to hear from writer and musician Nabil Ayers. His new memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, explores his complicated relationship with his biological father, the legendary musician Roy Ayers. Then, speaking of music, we've got some music from singer, songwriter, guitarist, and Grammy nominee Madison Cunningham. Rolling Stone calls her music a new spin on West Coast folk rock. Stick around, we've got our spin on public radio variety programming, which I'll get started right after this. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. Are you ready for a little station location identification examination? Absolutely. All right. This is where I am going to talk about a place in the country where LiveWire is on the radio. Elena has to guess where I am talking about. This place is the home to Kenneth Huggins, who in 2012 uh, was awarded the Guinness World Record for largest collection of toasters, (laughs) which at that time was over 1,200 toasters for Ken. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to figure out what, like, where was True West set? That's a play that has a lot of toasters in it. Wow. <laughs> California. Getting dramatic here on the show early. How about this? Synchronous fireflies, which are fireflies that light up at the same time, are only found in about half a dozen places. And one of them happens to be right outside this city in Congaree National Park. Ooh, is that somewhere in Tennessee? It is somewhere in South Carolina. Oh, sh- <laughs> Your old stomps. I, I should know all of these things. All right, one more. Uh, let's see. Are there uh, any more? The first textile mill run completely by electricity in the world opened at this place in 1894. Spartanburg. So close. Columbia. Columbia. South Carolina, where we are on the radio on WLTR Radio. Shout out to everybody in Columbia. All right, should we get to the show? Yes. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... This week, writer and podcast host, Nora McInerney. All of my books, like, fall under the category of, like, is this woman okay? But I'm also, like, a fairly good time if I leave my house. And music industry entrepreneur, Nabil Ayers. I have lots of fun stories. I was in a band that went to jail, and I owned a record store, and I, you know, met the dude from Sugar Ray. Like, I had all these fun (laughs) things. With music from Madison Cunningham and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke. 
Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena. Thanks to everyone tuning in from all over the country, including out there in Columbia, South Carolina. We got a great show in store for you this week. One of my favorite people out there, Nora McInerney, is going to be stopping by. Of course, we also asked the Livewire listeners a question. Uh, We asked, what is a small thing that you are too hard on yourself about? And we're going to hear the listener responses coming up in a minute. First, though, of course, we got to start things with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is some good news happening out there. Elena, what's the best news you heard this week? Uh, okay. This is adorable news. Are you ready? <laughs> the most adorable news <laughs> oh, you heard all week. It's so adorable. Uh, there's a six-year-old named Madeline living in the L.A. area who really wanted to get a pet unicorn. Mm. So her mother didn't want her to feel discouraged and be told uh, that, you know, it's impossible to get a pet unicorn. Everybody put your hands over your six-year-old's ears uh, because they don't exist. So to sort of like push the, uh, kick the can a little bit on that question, Mm -hmm. on Madeline's question, her mom said she'd probably need a lot of permission from local authorities in order to keep one. So this was her mom trying to kind of like stall the conversation. Yeah, like so it's not really, it's the softest no she could think of. It's a permitting issue. Yes, that's exactly right. She's like, yeah, it's a, they're exotic animals, young girl. And then, but Madeline was like, BRB. And she went into her room <laughs> and she came back with this handwritten letter that says, I would like your approval if I can have a unicorn in my backyard, if I could find one. And she made her mother mail it to the LA County Animal Control Department. And they got her a letter and two weeks later they wrote her back and they said, here is a little heart-shaped license that you can, right now it was attached to a stuffed unicorn because it would probably take her a while to find, you know, the real dill. Yeah, you got to practice with uh, kind of, you know, yeah. like a pretend one first. Yeah, exactly. And then there were five rules. Feed it watermelon, which is a unicorn's favorite food. Polish its horn at least once a week with a soft cloth. Make sure it has regular access to sunlight, moonbeams, and rainbows. Insert L.A. smog joke here. For mm. only decorate it with non-toxic biodegradable glitter. And perhaps the most adorable one, number five, be in full compliance with Title 10 of the L.A. County Code for Animal Welfare. <laughs> you know, those are also the tips for taking care of me. Oh, yeah? Do you need uh, only to be decorated in non-toxic biodegradable glitter? I only eat watermelon. <laughs> That is adorable, but of course, uh, you know, the county uh, sort of doing uh, this little girl that solid has now really brought to a head this conversation with the mom. Yeah, uh, they did say in their letter that it would probably take a while to find one. So mm-hmm. um, I guess it's it's now on Madeline to sort of manifest her dreams. Okay, the uh, the best news that I saw this week takes us to Middletown, Connecticut, mm. where there's a dry cleaners. It's called best cleaners. And you know how like places like dry cleaners often have a name that's a superlative and like, you don't really know, are they just trying to, you know, generate business? I think that there is a pretty strong argument that maybe best cleaners in Middletown is actually the best cleaners in America. (laughs) And it has to do with Eastern painted turtles, Elena. So behind this dry cleaners, there just happens to be this pond where these female Eastern painted turtles want to migrate every summer because that's where they want to lay their eggs. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that they got to cross a road. They've got to cross Route 17, which is kind of perilous for them. And then 
they're trying to make their way to the pond, and the people who run Best Cleaners kept noticing, this is like maybe five, ten years ago, that during certain times of the summer when it's really warm, you know, like a dry cleaners, also they're doing all that martinizing and things. It's like very, <laughs> I don't actually know what martinizing is, Me but either. I see it on the sign. <laughs> it's always hot in a dry cleaners, so they would open all their doors. And what they noticed was they would find little eastern painted turtles wandering around in the store. So they decided to open the back door of the dry cleaner and create like a corridor for the turtles. So they don't have to cross the road? Well, they cross the road, but they don't have to get trapped in the parking lot of the dry cleaner anymore. They can pass through the front door, through the dry cleaner, and then out the back door to the pond. And in fact, it's now become this whole thing for the people that work at the dry cleaners and also people who are customers. When people show up, they start looking for turtles because they're like in the corners of the store, in the corners <laughs> of the parking lot. They pick them up and they shepherd them. There's this whole process and everyone's really bought in on it. In fact, people love going to this dry cleaners in the summer because part of the fun is you, you're on the lookout for little turtles. You've got a turtle rescue mission in addition to your dry cleaning mission. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the employees now, also, they look forward to this all year long. So they know that summer is really there in Middletown, Connecticut. Upon the first observation of a turtle randomly wandering around the dry cleaning store, (laughs) uh, at some point, the city wanted to take this pond and drain it and turn it into a city park, which, you know, city parks are great and everything. But the local community said, absolutely not. This is where the eastern painted turtles need to go hang out. And we've got a whole system where we shepherd them through the dry cleaners. So uh, the town relented, and it's staying a pond for now. Oh, yay! Yeah, right? The eastern uh, painted turtles doing really well out there in Middletown, Connecticut. That's the best news I heard this week. All right, let's get our first guest on over. She is the host of the award-winning podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking. She's also the best-selling author of a bunch of books, including No Happy Endings and The Hot Young Widows Club. Her new collection of essays, Bad Vibes Only and Other Things I Bring to the Table, covers everything from body image to the benefits of lax parenting. Uh, Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Nora McInerney, recorded in front of a live crowd at Town Hall in Seattle. Nora, welcome to the show. Thank you. My self-esteem balloon just like flew up. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about this great book, Bad Vibes Only, that that uh, you have out because I just was, I thought it was so funny and also so kind of um, insightful and also uh, very relatable. One of the things that you write about is that you really don't like traveling. Like it's a miracle you're here in mm-hmm, Seattle. Truly. I'm, I yeah. follow you on TikTok and I was watching you on your book tour with an increasing series of TikToks about how mad you were about travel and airports. And I was thinking, she's not coming to Seattle. Like, I'm watching a person meltdown in real time. (laughs) So thank you for coming. But you have actually shown up at the airport, like, multiple times without a ticket. Without a ticket, or then I get to the city because I did have a ticket, and I walk up to the rental car counter, and they say, we would love to give you a car. However, you did have to reserve one. We don't have any for you. I say, check again. They're like, ma'am, we checked. Um, or I will get to the airport, and I will have a ticket, but my children and my husband won't. Mm. And I swear I bought more than just one ticket. So this was the, you were going to do the New York City half marathon, 
<laughs> and you had your husband and your kid, and but you were the only one with a ticket, so you just left them at the TSA. It sounds worse than it is. <laughs> I also had a carry-on baby. Um, a a yeah. baby you could... <laughs> It's a lot better than an overhead bin baby. This was not a baby you could check. I hate it. Every time I bring my baby, they make me put it in that metal frame and like it won't fit. Yeah, big baby. Nope, he's going to steerage. So uh, that did happen. That did happen. That happened. I was running the half marathon for the American Cancer Society, so... You can't be too mad at me right. for abandoning only one child and one husband uh-huh. at the airport. They, their flight was a different day. Uh-huh. So that you had got them tickets, but just for the next day. A different day. Yeah. <laughs> um, you write something in this book that I want to try to unpack with you a little bit. You say that you're the saddest, happy person that you know. What does that look like on a, like a day, day-to-day basis for you? Oh, oh. Oh, um, I listen to a lot of Taylor Swift, uh-huh. right? Um, all of my books like fall under the category of like, is this woman okay? <laughs> you know, but I'm also like a fairly good time if I leave my house, but I am also a person who, <laughs> you know, I listened to a lot of bright eyes early in my twenties uh-huh. and I never stopped, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? So it's, it's, a. Uh, it's definitely a good experience for the people around me and who love me to never know. Like, will Nora cry because she thinks that the man across the aisle from her on the airplane might be lonely? I could cry right now. <laughs> he, was, he was watching YouTube videos of Rod Stewart and tapping that toe. And I was like, oh, I hope someone loves you. I don't know why I'm like this. <laughs> I don't know why I'm like this. Okay? Or... Um, you know, will Nora take you to the airport and not buy you a plane ticket? I don't know. It could be anything. Uh, You feel things really deeply in whatever direction you're feeling them. True, yes. Now, um, you also write a lot about body image in this book. You want to look a certain way in your mind, but you also feel bad that you want to look that way, but you also feel bad that you feel bad, and then also you got your jaw accidentally paralyzed with some filler. I'm telling you, one, I'm an easy sale. You have anything to sell me, I'll buy two. Um, $1,000 worth of filler for my face, and they did hit a nerve. And I was, <laughs> I experienced some unintentional facial paralysis, <laughs> but my jaw was, it was very sharp. And I, as you can tell, I don't have a natural. So, you know, highs and lows, highs and lows. You win some, you lose some. But yeah, am I, am I a bad feminist for wanting to preserve myself in the amber of like who I am in my mind, which is, you know, a a 29 year old woman, (laughs) you know, or am I a bad feminist for judging myself for responding to a patriarchal capitalistic system that made me like, it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. Um, And then who am I to judge myself for judging myself and around and around we go and do you want the syringe yes and my husband was like well I mean at least it only cost you I was like at least it only cost me he had no idea he was like how much would you say you've spent on your face this year and I was like what a question what a question oh my god you look so good today with your three gray hairs and and all men age like boys it's like oh now you're a handsome Boy man, cool. <laughs> cool. Um, what did you... I'm looking at you. I'm looking you know at what? you. Listen, as they say on TikTok, a win is a win. Okay. A win is a win. I will take that from you, Nora. Uh, we have to take a quick break here on Livewire from PRX. We're at Town Hall Seattle this week. Yeah. Um, 
Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello and Nora McInerney. Quick break, and then we'll be back with much more Livewire in a moment. Back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're coming to you from Town Hall in Seattle this week. We're talking to Nora McInerney, host of the podcast Terrible. Thanks for asking, and also the new collection of essays, Bad Vibes Only. By the way, this whole thing brought to you by the Hotel Five here in Seattle. Um, I'm wondering, Nora, would you say that you hate writing, which is basically <laughs> your job? Um, mm, only when I have to do it. Oh, okay. You know, otherwise, like, I love the idea of it. I'll wake up in the morning and be like, wow, I thought of a sentence. I can't wait to get in there, crack open that laptop, and then fall down a rabbit hole for six hours. The kids will come home from school. I'll be extremely irritated because they're interrupting my work time that I had all those hours to do. <laughs> uh, but nothing inspires me like a, a crushing deadline. And in that moment... Like, I can write, and I love it. I love it. Is it like once you get into the flow with it, it just it feels like the ideas are coming easily and the words and things like that? Yeah. You know how some writers are like, here's what you got to do. You got to wake up early, eat the same thing every day. Dress like real like, John Grisham truly, style. Yes. Very, like John Grisham style or like, you know, whatever sort of airport man book is like, here's ways to crush it. And they're like, the only way to do it, you got to wake up. You got to do the same thing. Like, no, no, no. I think if, if I can't write that day, I'm not going to write unless I told someone I would turn something in, in 30 minutes, in which case, yeah, I'm doing it. And I was always doing it. And this is actually my fourth draft. And I thought about this very deeply, but I think like even reading is writing, watching TV is writing, interacting with the world is writing. And if you want to treat it like a commodity and a product, which yes, of course it is. But also if you want to just turn yourself into a lifeless production bot sure force yourself to get up every day and like meet a word count but otherwise like know that most writing is about living and like being a part of the world mm -hmm. um yeah i think that's something to applaud um you put words to something in this book that i had kind of thought about in my brain for a long time which is that basically sleeping is weird so not weird. like we need it but the idea that at the same time all over the world, when it gets dark, we agree to go inside and get on like a soft rectangle and put a thing over and close our eyes. It is a strange in phenomenon. In special clothes. In special clothes. In special sleep outfits. Yeah. That you can only wear when you sleep. Like I got to put on my sleep costume and like... After you like clean your little teeth, like humans are the cutest mammal like also like not just that we sleep but like imagine do you think any other mammal gathers in a room to look at another mammal doing something isn't that so cute like people are the cutest of the animals like look at all these little animals and they're like and i wore my favorite little thing and i carried all my favorite little 
things with me and I'm going to sit here and we're going to look at these ones. It's just so cute. It's so cute. And then they all have to sleep at night. All of them except you. Yeah, not me. And, but I get to watch my husband sleep because he falls asleep <laughs> if, if he wants to. <laughs> if he's tired, he'll just be like, well. <laughs> um, you also write about your parents' complete lack of awareness of where you were at any time in your childhood. Yeah. Which I, my parents are here, actually, for the show, <laughs> so I'll tread lightly. In fact, I believe my mom once texted me, why do you say that you were gone 12 hours a day in the summertime <laughs> on the radio? It makes me seem like a bad mom. Did you send me that text, Mom? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it is true that our parents were much less aware oh, of yeah. our whereabouts. Yeah. 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 What was that? Like, you took a canoe trip that... Really could have killed you. Yeah, I don't think any like nine and ten year olds should be uh, in a water vessel unattended, <laughs> like ever. I think that might be considered maybe even illegal now, but it was the nineties, and our moms were doing something else, and we were up at our grandparents' cabin, which was like rustic, like whatever you're imagining. Dial it down. Okay. You, oh, you want to watch TV? You can listen to the Twins game on the radio. Won't that be a gas? <laughs> And my cousin and I really wanted to go to town because we had maybe $5 between us, like burning a hole in our pockets. And we took a canoe <laughs> to just paddle our little bodies. And other people were on this lake. Like other people saw us, adults, by the way, adults boated by two children, like with no water. Like also kids drink so much water. I never, I never had a glass of water. <laughs> I think until I was like 20. <laughs> I was like, what is this? <laughs> like you could go to a water fountain and like take like a little, like, like one little, and that was it. Yeah. That because was there was needed. 30 kids in line behind 30, you. There were 30 kids and they were like, you better. And if it was a bully, you were getting your head smashed into it anyway. Aww. And it was like the saddest stream of water. Oh, yeah. You had to basically like create as much suction as possible. lips right on it. It was like, you're yeah. like, Jeffrey, we saw that. <laughs> you don't have to suck it out of the pipe. But right. are you able to then, like you have kids, are, yeah. are you able to be sort of hands off with them? Or, I want to. But. <laughs> I want to. They're, these kids are <laughs> so soft. <laughs> My kids, <laughs> like we had a high schooler, like this is like even before the pandemic, who would be like, what are we doing? I was like, well, it's Saturday. What are you Oh, we? All of us? Okay. Like, <laughs> all right. And I would love to just have my kids walk to school, which is totally doable. Uh, but my husband is, I mean, he's a real, like, 21st century parent. And I'm still in the 90s. I'm still like, they take a left. How hard can it be? He's like, well, they have to cross a busy street. There's a crossing guard, like an adult one, with a light up stop sign. Like, I think they'll be okay. So I would love to. Um, you have the really incredible podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking, um, and you have this TED Talk that's been, I like watched maybe as much as any other TED Talk out there. Like you really have been known for a while as somebody who is really um, wise when it comes to grief because mm -hmm. you, you lost your husband, you lost your father, uh, and you've written about it. And a lot of people I know even who are here, they look to you for advice and comfort and things like that. I also know that's a big emotional burden mm -hmm. for you because I know you. Yeah. Is this book <laughs> to some degree kind of moving past the grief space 
I don't know if I'll ever be past it because I do think it is a part of that little sad inner core of me. And I do think that we are meant to be changed, right, by all these experiences. And losing Aaron when he was 35 years old, losing my dad when he was, you know, 64, 62, I should know that, 62. Of course, that will always, like that permanently affected who I am. It formed me into who I am today. And also, when you make your life everyone's business and then you sort of inadvertently with no strategic plan whatsoever make it like your literal business, it does start to feel like you are a commodity, that you are, I am revolted by the idea of a personal brand and yet I sort of find myself in one, like in this one that I I made, I didn't know that I was doing it, maybe I did, who knows. I am always going to be a person who is shaped by that experience, but wait, there's more, mm-hmm. right? There, but wait, there's there's more. also bad parenting. There's also bad parenting. Okay, there's also so much bad parenting on both ends. Okay, <laughs> starts from the top, right, and then it just keeps going. And I did want to write about the other experiences and the other thoughts and the other feelings I have that also make me me, that also connect me to this world around me, um, and make me happy to be here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Words of wisdom from Nora McInerney, everyone, right here on Livewire. That was Nora McInerney, right here on Livewire, her new collection of essays, Bad Vibes Only and Other Things I Bring to the Table, is out now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Mitch and Trent Finley of Portland, Oregon. Hey, Those are my actual friends in real life. And Mitch and Trent are part of the Livewire member community. And they're generously supporting us with a donation each month. And we're very thankful for that support because it's how we're able to keep doing the show. So thanks, Mitch and Trent, for keeping Livewire going. You're listening to Livewire. Of course, each week we ask our listeners a question. Uh, This week we asked, what's a small thing you're too hard on yourself about? Uh, Elaine has been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? Uh, How about this one from Thea? The small thing Thea is too hard on herself about when I don't have my punch rewards card at a place where they give you punch (laughs) rewards. Oh, I hate that feeling. (laughs) Sometimes they give you another one. And, you know, so I end up Uh like at my coffee shop that I go to the most. I have like six punch cards that each have one punch on them. Mm-hmm. You can kind of like add them all up and make like a full card or whatever. Yeah, you tie a string around them and wear them around your neck. <laughs> it's just coming. <laughs> I'm hopeless with those things. You know what I need? You know, at the casino, there's a lanyard they make that like clicks into your little rewards card so you can't ever lose it. I need multiple lanyards <laughs> to keep track of that and reusable grocery bags. Uh, I just need to have those kinds of things all attached to somewhere on my shirt <laughs> so I won't forget them. All right, what's uh, something else small that one of our listeners might be a little hard on themselves about? Oh, how about this one from Ava? Ava says, when the wait staff tells me to enjoy my meal and I say, you too. The same thing at airports when people tell me to have a nice flight. (laughs) I've had entire vacations ruined by just casually uttering you too when the uh, f- you know person at the gate says enjoy your flight like that will just <laughs> live as they say rent free in my head for <laughs> weeks on end i hate that kind of stuff all right one more uh, small thing that one of our listeners is kind of hard on themselves about 
Speaking of airports, how about this one from Whitney? Whitney says, not having matching socks on at the airport and then going through security and everyone could see how ridiculous you look. Aww. It's okay to have mismatched socks. That's fine. I feel incredibly seen. I have a bunch of socks that are sort of like in the same family, Mm -hmm. but they have different like levels of insignia on them and they're I just put them on you know in the morning it's probably dark out and then I'm standing in line at the airport and that's when the (laughs) the rubber really meets the road am I wearing matching socks or not oh I don't I don't know Uh, I feel like you should all be absolved of that the the only thing that I'm afraid of in that is if I forget and I have sandals on and I have to walk through barefoot like that's I don't want to walk through the security line barefoot is the only thing I don't want to do right (laughs) all right thank you to everyone who sent in a response to our a listener question this week, like I said, I I like to know that I'm not uh, alone in these various <laughs> these various adventures uh, in life. All right, let's uh, welcome our next guest on over to the program. He's seen the music industry from almost every possible angle. He was the drummer for the indie band The Long Winters. He co-founded one of the most iconic record stores in America, Sonic Boom Records in Seattle, and he's the biological son of the legendary musician Roy Ayers, who is the person behind the hit. Everybody Loves the Sunshine. Um, In fact, that relationship, or lack thereof, is what Nabil Ayers explores in his fascinating new memoir, My Life in the Sunshine, which Kirkus calls a searchingly eloquent memoir of music and family. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Nabil Ayers here on Livewire. All right. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I I really uh, enjoyed this book. I mean, it has a whole lot in it. It's a lot of it is about your musical career. A lot of it is about your relationship or again, sort of lack thereof with Roy Ayers. Um, I guess a way that this book could be boiled down maybe reductively would be guy is very successful in the music business, but is estranged from his biological father and sets out to find him. But I feel like that misses some of the nuance of the book and specifically the actual agreement (laughs) that your mom and Roy Ayers had yeah. regarding your conception. Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah, I mean, my mother, who I'm still very close with, who lives close to me in Brooklyn, I see all the time. She was 21, living in New York, um, had kind of, I think, a relatively unhappy childhood and decided she wanted to be a young single mother. She knew she wanted to do that, and she met my father, and she said, I think they were dating, these are air quotes for the radio, and, uh, and said hey, I really want to have a child. I want you to be the father. You do not have to be part of our lives. What do you think? And he said, okay. And so I've always known that. And it's never been weird in that he didn't leave us. There wasn't a divorce. I had incredible male role models and a great father figure in my uncle, but it's a you know unique situation. Yeah. Did you start off with the writing project of this book thinking it was going to be about your life and career and experience and not get into the dad stuff? No, it was kind of the opposite. I start, I mean, I'm not a writer. I run a record label. I played in bands and owned a record store. And five or six years ago, I started writing because I think I just thought I'm in my 40s now. I have lots of fun stories. I was in a band that went to jail and I owned a record store and I, you know, met the dude from Sugar Ray. Like I had all these fun <laughs> things. 
<laughs> I probably wouldn't kick the story off with the Sugar Ray guy. Yeah. I would. It, it made the book, the Sugar Ray story, yeah. in case anyone's wondering. And he's like wondering. wonderful. Like, yeah. He's a lovely, really like, smart too. Side yeah. note, by the way, if you've ever looked at Mark McGrath on Cameo, which I have, guy really over delivers. My, my, like, my wife hired him for her company. <laughs> he is great on Cameo. Would yeah. recommend. He's great. Uh, where were we? <laughs> we're talking about the, the, the origin of the book, or kind of right, how right. you started with this. So whole I was thing. writing about all the fun stories about music and, and record stores and things. And, and it was my wife who said, you know, you should really be writing about your father and your race. And I knew she was right, but I, I wasn't trying to write a book at the time. I was really just writing for myself, for fun. My mother writes a lot. My grandmother, my mother's mother wrote a lot. Um, and so to me, it just felt like I was telling stories. It was interesting. It was something I was doing in a really safe way because I didn't think anyone was going to read them. Hmm. And at a certain point, when I started writing about my father, I just started thinking about each of the times I'd met him, the time when I saw him open for the Grateful Dead when I was nine years old, and apparently we went backstage and talked to him for three minutes. I actually didn't remember that time, but I remember the story my mother told me about it, the time when I was 35, and I finally decided it's time to try to meet him, and we had this great lunch in Seattle, and there are lots of other sort of, not lots, like five or six moments. And so I wrote each of those. And I think eventually I realized, like, wow, if there is a way to sort of connect all of these moments, this could be a book. So I'd done a lot of the, the kind of emotionally hard work before I decided anyone might see it. And I think that's the kind of the only way it could happen. I, uh, I never met my biological father, so I read this book with great interest. Yeah. And I just remember, for me growing up, because I had a really great stepdad and a good, really loving family... I didn't go around feeling like I was missing out on that. And you had this really great mom and this really great uncle. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you to not have your actual father in your life as a kid? It depended where I was. For my first 10 years, I was in Amherst, Massachusetts, and New York City, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, and the specific places we were were really diverse. And it wasn't weird to be a biracial kid with a black father and a white mother. It wasn't weird that we had no money and we were on welfare those years while my mother was going to college. Um, and it definitely wasn't weird to not have a father. There were lots of single parent households. And so I was just a normal kid for 10 years. And then we moved to Salt Lake City when I was 10. <laughs> Not the bohemian enclave that Amherst had been, as you describe it. <laughs> yeah. So my mother worked for American Express. They moved us there. And, uh, and that was just the first time that anyone said, you know, people would say, can I touch your afro? I used to have one of those. Um, you know, where's your father? Those kinds of questions that, that would have actually sadly been normal for, for people to ask me. But the places that we lived, no one ever asked me those questions. And suddenly they did. So it was weird to, to have this very confident, normal childhood till I was 10. And then suddenly at 10 years old, hear these questions for the first time. And I think realize, oh, wow, maybe it is weird that I don't have a father in, in my life or that or that people think it's weird for the first time. So it was interesting to have that happen then. But I think I was confident enough that I just sort of made it work. And that's when I, you know, I was playing drums and I was into MTV and records. And that was really, I don't want to say the thing that saved me, meaning like I would have gone into a life of crime if I didn't have those things but I mean it made it made my life better it's how I connected with people kids came over and I always tried to start a band and I would play records and that was kind of the thing that made me more of a normal kid right I know that you you you've sort of become friendly with a couple half siblings of yours who were more directly raised by Roy Ayers mm -hmm. and I know you sent your your half brother a copy of the book and it sounds like that's pretty much all you know about if 
uh, Royers has read it or not. Right. Well, I didn't even send it to him. I emailed him and said, this is my half-brother who actually grew up with my father, who I've met once and emailed with a few times. Um, and I just said, this is probably in January when the book was coming out in the summer. I thought, like, okay, word's going to start to get out. I should at least do some due diligence. So I emailed him and I said, I've got this book coming. It's about our father. You're in it. He's in it a lot. I'm not in touch with him. If you want to tell him, you should. If you want me to send it to you, I will. And he replied, like, LOL, congrats. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) That is going to be my new response when I don't want to engage. I was like, this isn't like, this is the email I've been dreading sending people, close friends, my wife, everyone been asking me like, are you going to tell your father? Are you going to somehow get it to him? This is really like, you know, and it's getting to the point where, okay, I need to do something or I need to make a decision. And when I sent it, I felt like, you know, all that yeah. <laughs> replied pretty quickly. It's like, oh, great. We're cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that must have been a, a big but relief. It, a, a big relief in that that's all I was going to do. So there's nothing else for me to do. I, I yeah. assume by now he knows about it. I don't know if he's read it, but that's, that's all I know. Yeah. Yeah. We are talking to Nabil Ayers about his new book, My Life in the Sunshine. Um, you uh, founded a, you co-founded a record store in Seattle that I just grew up hanging out in a lot. Sonic Boom Records. <laughs> Thank you. It was the place to go if you were like yes. an indie kid in Seattle and I was yeah, there. Yeah. I'm wondering what it's been like for you to be a black man in the indie music space, the record store space, a lot of these places that can be traditionally pretty white. Yeah, and, and Seattle, a place yeah. that can be <laughs> pretty white. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's so weird because there's, there's a section of the book where I talk about the store, and I remember that when I started writing about it, there's a lot of stuff about race in the book. And the, I wrote a sentence that said, I didn't have many racial issues at Sonic Boom, or something like that. And then I started thinking, but surely there are some, let me think. Oh, there's this time. Oh, and there's this time. Oh, and there's that time. And then I erased the first sentence, and then I wrote about 30 things, and then I kept in, like, the best sort of five. And none of them were terrible, but it was like, you know, some of them were real things, like when people came in and asked to own the store, and I could just tell the way they looked at me that they were surprised. And that's, you know, whatever. We call those microaggressions now, right? Not the hugest, most racist thing. And some of them were sort of protective measures that I kept in my head where, like, when the store got broken into one night and I got the call from the alarm company and I showed up at 2 in the morning and I was in the store and the lights were out and the cash register was smashed, you know, on the ground and I knew the police were coming, I immediately thought to go outside, wait for the police, make sure I had my ID and not be inside the store, crouch over the cash register. Yeah. But I, you know, so nobody did that to me, but I thought that. And so... Yeah. There's a lot of that, and there always has been, and that's the way the world was and is, I think. It's, it's not terrible, but it's not great, and I wish it didn't exist. Um, now, this, of course, is not your first time in Portland. You toured with lots of bands in the yeah. Northwest, and I was reading an interview you did with the Willamette Week where they asked you, I think, some memories from Portland, and your, your most vivid memory involved <laughs> crouching under a drum kit for the guy from Black Flag. I mean... This, was, this, this is a great memory, even though it comes across as a terrible story. But, uh, and, and the backstory is, I mean, when I lived in Salt Lake City in high school, I became a huge fan of the band Descendants. I'm sure there are some fans here. It's a California punk band. Saw them in high school. That was one of the shows that, for me, really was like, I was going to lots of, tons of shows, but like lots of arena shows and big things. And this was the first show that it was like, wow, I can like 
hear the amp and I can make eye contact with the guitar player. This is like this real visceral thing. And, uh, and eight, nine years later, suddenly I'm in this band called The Lemons, this rock band in Seattle, and we're touring with All, which is essentially Descendants with a different singer. And it's Bill Stevenson, the same drummer who I just worshipped and idolized. And we're in Portland at La Luna. Does anyone remember La Luna? <laughs> yeah. This is probably 1995 at La Luna. And Bill, the drummer, comes to me and says, and I think it was The Lemons and Toadies and All. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> taking you back. And Bill says, hey, my drum tech is, you know, is sick or something, uh, so I need you to drum tech for me tonight. I'll pay you $50. And at the time, I was like, Jesus, that is so much money. I am, <laughs> that's like, that's incredible. And then the other, the, you know, that was the angel on my shoulder, and the devil was like, that is the hardest $50 you're ever going to make, because I knew what that guy did every night. And so I had to say yes. And so they played like maybe an hour set. They didn't play a very long set, and I was crouched under him. And, you know, he just, they, like, they just play a straight set. They don't take breaks. They don't talk between songs. And it's really fast music. So he's playing the whole time. And my job is to, like, tighten his snare drum because it loosens because he hits it so hard throughout every song. But I can't ever do it because he never stops playing. <laughs> and so I'm doing it. And I'm seriously getting, like, hit with sticks. And there's, like, wood chips. He's sweating. He's sweating all over me. He's spitting. It's, like, hitting me. And, of course, at one point, his bass drum pedal breaks, which is the worst thing that can happen to a drummer. And I know that, that you know, there's an extra one sitting right there, but I have to completely crawl under him and like, fix this thing. It was a really like, treacherous, crazy hour, but a great story to have. You know, I mean, it was fun. Like, could you have ever imagined in that moment at La Luna, right. one day I will be the head of multiple record labels and have a hit memoir out? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I thought I'd made it at that point when I was looking up <laughs> yeah. at him, getting hit with drumsticks. Although, yeah. in fairness, we are not paying you $50 to be here, so that was a more profitable evening <laughs> right, right. sheer dollars. Well, right. it's been great having you, and congrats on the book. It's Thank really you something. so much. Thanks Nabil Ayers, everybody. Thanks, everybody. That was Nabil Ayers right here on Livewire, his memoir, My Life in the Sunshine is available now. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with some incredible, and I cannot overstate this, incredible music from Madison Cunningham. You do not want to miss this. Coming up on LiveWire. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Okay, before we get to our musical guest this week, a little preview of next week's episode. We are going to be talking to Aubrey Gordon from the incredible Maintenance Phase podcast, which the New York Times calls essential listening for anyone who's ever been in the grips of the diet industrial complex and wants to be deprogrammed. Plus, comedy from Chris Mejia and music from the incredible Danielle Ponder. And of course, as always, 
We're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? We want to know, nay, we need to know, what is... A f- nay, we must know. It's imperative that we know. <laughs> what is a fad that you fell for, a.k.a.? Mm, jelly bracelets. Thighmaster. If you have a fad that you fell for that you want to tell us about, go ahead and submit by way of Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, our musical guest this week is an American singer-songwriter, guitarist, and Grammy winner. Her previous albums, Who Are You Now and Wednesday, were nominated for Grammys. Rolling Stone described her music as a new spin on West Coast folk rock. Her latest album, Revealer, which was released back in 2022, actually won the Grammy for Best Folk Album. This is Madison Cunningham here on Livewire, recorded at Town Hall in Seattle. Welcome to the show, Madison. Thank you very much. Um, I know that you grew up in the church, and like your dad was a pastor, so I assume you played a lot of like worship music and stuff in the church. Is that where you basically learned how to play guitar and sing and stuff? Yeah, that's also kind of where I learned how to sing and play at the same mm-hmm. time, which was it was it was important for me. Did you have a favorite worship song? I can't say that I did. You weren't like an awesome is our God kind awesome of kind is, of gal. Know. Our God is an awesome God. Does that exist? I don't know. Oh yeah, awesome I can sing it God. right now. Believe me. <laughs> we get my get my mom and dad up here. We have a whole situation. Is that is that like a '90s worship song? I think it was probably like '80s. It was probably you know uh, like on a tape that we would get. We used to get a monthly worship like tape that had worship music on it. But do you think you would have been a musician if you hadn't grown up? In a, in a particular environment where there was the freedom for you to like play an instrument and sing like if your dad had owned a dry cleaners. <laughs> God, I don't know. I, I think having him as an example, he was the, you know, the first person I ever saw hold a guitar and play guitar. And I think without that, who's to say if I would have come to it or not? But uh, I, I don't know if I would have been, maybe I would have taken over the family dry cleaning business instead. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I would have found my way to music um, Right. But yeah, that's an interesting rabbit hole to fall down. I don't know. Backstage, we were talking a little bit about being performers, and because I consider us almost on the same level. <laughs> um, and I, I was asking you if you had that phase as a musician where you were playing a lot of, you know, coffee shops, and I don't know if you busked or not, but just like playing music in places where no one really asked you to show up and play music. How do you get through that as a as a performer? That is the most important stage, I think, because that's where your your ego sort of grows for a minute and then it gets crushed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, oh, countless shows where it was just my mom and dad and sisters in the front and uh, I would go home and, you know, we would celebrate and they were so nice like that and uh, I would cry a little bit too. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, because, you know, you just didn't know if it was ever going to become anything or if anyone would really ever show up and slowly... As, as the time went on, they did. But it's also great because like at the time when people do show up, you're a little bit more ready for it because mm-hmm. you've been playing all of those, all of your best shows to nobody. <laughs> yeah. Well, what song are we going to hear? Uh, this one's called All I've Ever Known. All right. This is Madison Cunningham on Livewire.
The Chrysler invention homes and blows Warm air through the vents and it's straight to the bone Outside it's nine below It's a pain I've never known If the fumes don't kill you first, then the dreaming surely will. You tell me on the phone. It's a pain you've never known. No. I look out the window and let my mind wander from order to the open sky. And sometimes I swear. I'll just never return, but you're all I'll ever know. You're all I've ever known. No. Well, you take me as I am in perfect obedience to all these demands. I'm a child of the wonder, but a victim. Change when I see you again. Well, I know what to say. I'm not immune to a piece of bad news. I just do what I must to move on. Give me truth, but pull me under so I. It's the only way I know It's the only way I know I hear nothing, no rescue coming Just church bells drawing out the doors I'm afraid that you were made by invention And that's all
Wow. Madison Cunningham, everybody. That was Madison Cunningham right here on Livewire, recorded at Town Hall in Seattle. Her latest album, Revealer, is available now. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Nora McInerney, Nabil Ayers, and Madison Cunningham. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Special thanks this week to Town Hall Seattle, Hotel 5, Cupcake Royale, and Rubens Brews. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. And Julian McElmurray is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Mitch and Trent Finley of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.